This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents science fiction author and former journalist Frank Herbert, reading from his epic trilogy of stories about the planet Dune. To understand the conflicts of Dune, you must know about the field process shield, which slows the rapid thrust of any solid object. Know about the feudal society which has grown up in these times and about the harsh training for the aristocracy. You meet Paul Atreides here at age 15 when he enters a training session with one of his teachers, Gurney Halleck. They are in the family castle on Caladan. Paul lifted the companion rapier, bent it in his hands, stood in the aguil one foot forward. He let his manner go solemn in a comic imitation of Dr. Yue. What a dolt my father sends me for weaponry, Paul intoned. This doltish Gurney Halleck has forgotten the first lesson for a fighting man, armed and shielded. Paul snapped the force button at his waist, felt the crinkled skin tingling of the defensive field at his forehead and down his back, heard external sounds take on the characteristic shield-filtered flatness. In shield fighting, one moves fast on defense, slow on attack, Paul said. Attack has the sole purpose of tricking the opponent into a misstep, setting him up for the attack sinister. The shield turns the fast blow, admits the slow kinjal. Paul snapped up the rapier, fainted fast, and whipped it back for a slow thrust, timed to enter a shield's mindless defenses. Halleck watched the action, turned at the last minute to let the blunted blade pass his chest. Speed excellent, he said, but you were wide open for an underhanded counter with a slip tip. Paul stepped back, chagrined. I should whap your backside for such carelessness, Halleck said. He lifted a naked kinjal from the table and held it up. This, in the hand of an enemy, can let out your life's blood. You're an apt pupil, none better. But I've warned you that not even in play do you let a man inside your guard with death in his hand. I guess I'm not in the mood for it today, Paul said. Mood? Halleck's voice betrayed his outrage even through the shield's filtering. What has mood to do with it? You fight when the necessity arises, no matter the mood. Mood's a thing for cattle, or making love, or playing the balisette. It's not for fighting. I'm sorry, Gurney. You're not sorry enough. Halleck activated his own shield, crouched with Kinjal outthrust in left hand, the rapier poised high in his right. Now I say guard yourself for true. He leaped high to one side, then forward, pressing a furious attack. Paul fell back, parrying. He felt the field crackling as shield edges touched and repelled each other, sensed the electric tingling of the contact along his skin. What's gotten into Gurney, he asked himself. He's not faking this. Paul moved his left hand, dropped his bodkin into his palm from its wrist sheath. You see a need for an extra blade, eh? Halleck grunted. Is this betrayal, Paul wondered? Surely not Gurney. Around the room they fought, thrust and parry, faint and counterfeint. The air within their shield bubbles grew stale from the demands on it that the slow interchange along barrier edges could not replenish. With each new shield contact, the smell of ozone grew stronger. Paul continued to back, but now he directed his retreat toward the exercise table. If I can turn him beside the table, I'll show him a trick, Paul thought. One more step, Gurney. Halleck took the step. Paul directed a parry downward, turned, saw Halleck's rapier catch against the table's edge. Paul flung himself aside, thrust high with rapier, and came in across Halleck's neckline with the bodkin. 
He stopped the blade an inch from the jugular. Is this what you seek? Paul whispered. Look down, lad, Gurney panted. Paul obeyed, saw Halleck's kinjal thrust under the table's edge, the tip almost touching Paul's groin. We'd have joined each other in death, Halleck said, but I'll admit you fought some better when pressed to it. You seem to get the mood, and he grinned wolfishly, the ink vine scar rippling along his jaw. The way you came at me, Paul said, would you really have drawn my blood? Halleck withdrew the kinjal straightened. If you'd fought one whit beneath your abilities, I'd have scratched you a good one, a scar you'd remember. I'll not have my favorite pupil fall to the first Harkonnen tramp who happens along. No Harkonnen tramp gets Paul Atreides, but on Dune they do kill all but Paul and his mother, the Lady Jessica. The two of them flee to the desert, where they seek refuge with Liet Kynes, the planetologist. They are talking to Kynes when the door behind Paul slammed open. He whirled to see reeling violence, shouting the clash of steel, wax image faces grimacing in the passage. With his mother beside him, Paul leaped for the door, seeing Idaho blocking the passage, his blood-pitted eyes there visible through a shield blur, claw hands beyond him, arcs of steel chopping futilely at the shield. There was the orange fire mouth of a stunner repelled by the shield. Idaho's blades were through it all, flick-flicking, red dripping from them. Then Kynes was beside Paul, and they threw their weight against the door. Paul had one last glimpse of Idaho standing against a swarm of Harkonnen uniforms, his jerking controlled staggers, the black goat hair with a red blossom of death in it. Then the door was closed, and there came a snick as Kynes threw the bolts. You've a way out of here, Paul said. Shall we use it? Kynes took a deep breath, said, This door should hold for at least twenty minutes against all but a lace gun. They'll not use a lace gun for fear we've shields on this side, Paul said. Those were Sardaukar in Harkonnen uniforms, Jessica whispered. They could hear pounding on the door now, rhythmic blows. Kynes indicated the cabinets against the right-hand wall, said, This way. He crossed to the first cabinet, opened a drawer, manipulated a handle within it, the entire wall of cabinets swung open to expose the black mouth of a tunnel. This door also is plasteel, Kynes said. You were well prepared, Jessica said. We lived under the Harkonnens for eighty years, Kynes said. He herded them into the darkness, closed the door. In the sudden blackness, Jessica saw a luminous arrow on the floor ahead of her. Kynes' voice came from behind them. We'll separate here. This wall is tougher. It'll stand for at least an hour. Follow the arrows like that one on the floor. They'll be extinguished by your passage. They lead through a maze to another exit where I've secreted a thopter. There's a storm across the desert tonight. Your only hope is to run for that storm, dive into the top of it, ride with it. My people have done this in stealing thopters. If you stay high in the storm, you'll survive. What of you, Paul asked. I'll try to escape another way if I'm captured. Well, I'm still Imperial Planetologist. I can say I was your captive. Running like cowards, Paul thought. But how else can I live to avenge my father? He turned to face the door. Jessica heard him move, said, Duncan's dead, Paul. You saw the wound. You can do nothing for him. I'll take full payment for them all one day, Paul said. Not unless you hurry now, Kynes said. Paul felt the man's hand on his shoulder. Where will we meet, Kynes? Paul asked. 
I'll send Fremen searching for you. The storm's path is known. Hurry now, and the Great Mother give you speed and luck. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanets. This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents selections from the ecologically prophetic Dune Trilogy, read by the author, Frank Herbert. Jameis stepped into the ring, slipped out of his robe, and tossed it to someone in the crowd. He stood there in a cloudy gray slickness of still suit that was patched and marked by tucks and gathers. For a moment he bent with his mouth to his shoulder, drinking from a catch-pocket tube. Presently he straightened, peeled off, and detached the suit, handed it carefully into the crowd. He stood waiting, clad in loincloth and some tight fabric over his feet, a Chris knife in his right hand. Jessica saw the girl child, Cheney, helping Paul, saw her press a Chris knife handle into his palm, saw him heft it, testing the weight and balance. And it came to Jessica that Paul had been trained in prana and bindu, the nerve and the fiber, that he had been taught fighting in a deadly school, his teachers men like Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck, men who were legends in their own lifetimes. The boy knew the devious ways of the Bene Gesserit, and he looked supple and confident. But he's only fifteen, she thought, and he has no shield. I must stop this. Somehow there must be a way to... She looked up, saw Stilgar watching her. You cannot stop it, he said. You must not speak. She put a hand over her mouth, thinking, I've planted fear in Jameis's mind. I'll slow him some. Perhaps... If I could only pray, truly pray. Paul stood alone now, just into the ring, clad in the fighting trunks he'd worn under his stillsuit. He held a Chris knife in his right hand. His feet were bare against the sand-gritted rock. Idaho had warned him time and again, when in doubt of your surface, bare feet are best. And there were Cheney's words of instruction still in the front of his consciousness. Jameis turns to the right with his knife after a parry. It's a habit in him we've all seen, and he'll aim for the eyes to catch a blink in which to slash you, and he can fight either hand, look out for a knife shift. But strongest in Paul, so that he felt it with his entire body, was training and the instinctual reaction mechanism that had been hammered into him day after day, hour after hour, on the practice floor. Gurney Halleck's words were there to remember. A good knife fighter thinks on point and blade and shearing guard simultaneously. The point can also cut, the blade can also stab, the shearing guard can also trap your opponent's blade. Paul glanced at the Chris knife. There was no shearing guard, only the slim, round ring of the handle 
with its raised lips to protect the hand. And even so, he realized that he did not know the breaking tension of this blade, did not even know if it could be broken. Jameis began sidling to the right along the edge of the ring opposite Paul. Paul crouched, realizing then that he had no shield, but was trained to fighting with its subtle field around him, trained to react on defense with utmost speed, while his attack would be timed to the controlled slowness necessary for penetrating the enemy's shield. In spite of constant warning from his trainers not to depend on the shield's mindless blunting of attack speed, he knew that shield awareness was part of him. Jameis called out in ritual challenge, May thy knife chip and shatter. This knife will break then, Paul thought. He cautioned himself that Jameis also was without shield, but the man wasn't trained to its use, had no shield fighter inhibitions. Paul stared across the ring at Jameis. The man's body looked like knotted whipcord on a dried skeleton. His crisp knife shone milky yellow in the light of the glow globes. Fear coursed through Paul. He felt suddenly alone and naked, standing in dull yellow light within this ring of people. Prescience had fed his knowledge with countless experiences. He hinted at the strongest currents of the future and the strings of decision that guided them. But this was the real now. This was death, hanging on an infinite number of minuscule mischances. Anything could tip the future here, he realized. Someone coughing in the troop of watchers, a distraction, a variation in a glow globe's brilliance, a deceptive shadow. I'm afraid, Paul told himself, and he circled warily opposite Jameis, repeating silently to himself the Bene Gesserit litany against fear. Fear is the mind killer. It was a cool bath washing over him. He felt muscles untie themselves, become poised and ready. I'll sheath my knife in your blood, Jameis snarled, and in the middle of the last word he pounced. Jessica saw the motion stifled an outcry. Where the man struck, there was only empty air, and Paul stood now behind Jameis with a clear shot at the exposed back. Now, Paul, now, Jessica screamed it in her mind. Paul's motion was slowly timed, beautifully fluid, but so slow it gave Jameis the margin to twist away backing and turning to the right. Paul withdrew, crouching low. First you must find my blood, he said. Jessica recognized the shield fighter timing in her son, and it came over her what a two-edged thing that was. The boy's reactions were those of youth and trained to a peak these people had never seen. But the attack was trained too, and conditioned by the necessities of penetrating a shield barrier. A shield would repel too fast a blow, admit only the slowly deceptive counter. It needed control and trickery to get through a shield. Does Paul see it, she asked herself. He must. Again, Jameis attacked, ink-dark eyes glaring, his body a yellow blur against the glow globes. And again, Paul slipped away to return too slowly on the attack. And again, and again, each time Paul's counter-blow came an instant late and Jessica saw a thing she hoped Jameis did not see. Paul's defensive reactions were blindingly fast, but they moved each time at the precisely correct angle they would take if a shield were helping deflect part of Jameis's blow. Is your son playing with that poor fool, Stilgar asked. He waved her to silence before she could respond. Sorry, you must remain silent. Now the two figures on the rock floor circled each other, Jameis with knife hand held far forward and tipped up slightly. Paul crouched with knife held low. 
Again, Jameis pounced, and this time he twisted to the right where Paul had been dodging. Instead of faking back and out, Paul met the man's knife hand on the point of his own blade, and the boy was gone, twisting away to the left and thankful for Cheney's warning. Jameis backed into the center of the circle, rubbing his knife hand. Blood dripped from the injury for a moment, stopped. His eyes were wide and staring, two blue-black holes, studying Paul with a new wariness in the dull light of the glow globes. Ah, that one hurt, Stilgar murmured. Paul crouched at the ready, and as he had been trained to do after first blood, called out, Do you yield? Ha! Jameis cried. An angry murmur arose from the troop. Hold! Stilgar called out. The lad doesn't know our rule. Then to Paul. There can be no yielding in the Tahadi challenge. Death is the test of it. Jessica saw Paul swallow hard, and she thought, He's never killed a man like this in the hot blood of a knife fight. Can he do it? Paul circled slowly right, forced by Jameis's movement. The prescient knowledge of the time-boiling variables in this cave came back to plague him now. His new understanding told him there were too many swiftly compressed decisions in this fight for any clear channel ahead to show itself. Variable piled on variable. That was why this cave lay as a blurred nexus in his path. It was like a gigantic rock in the flood, creating maelstroms in the current around it. Have an end to it, lad, Stilgar muttered. Don't play with him. Paul crept farther into the ring, relying on his own edge and speed. Jameis backed, now that the realization swept over him that this was no soft outworlder in the Tahadi ring, easy prey for a Fremen knife. Jessica saw the shadow of desperation in the man's face. Now is when he's most dangerous, she thought. Now he's desperate and can do anything. He sees that this is not like a child of his own people, but a fighting machine born and trained to it from infancy. Now the fear I planted in him has come to bloom. And she found in herself a sense of pity for Jameis, an emotion tempered by awareness of the immediate peril to her son, Jameis could do anything, any unpredictable thing, she told herself. She wondered then if Paul had glimpsed this future, if he were reliving this experience. Paul pressed the fight now, circling but not attacking. He had seen the fear in his opponent. Memory of Duncan Idaho's voice flowed through Paul's awareness. When your opponent fears you, then's the moment when you give the fear its own reign. Give it the time to work on him. Let it become terror. The terrified man fights himself. Eventually he attacks in desperation. That is the most dangerous moment, but the terrified man can be trusted usually to make a fatal mistake. You are being trained here to detect these mistakes and use them. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. 
This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanet. This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents The Dangerous Desert World of Dune in excerpts from the Dune Trilogy read by author Frank Herbert. The crowd in the cavern began to mutter. They think Paul's toying with Jameis, Jessica thought. They think Paul's being needlessly cruel. But she sensed also the undercurrent of crowd excitement, their enjoyment of the spectacle, and she could see the pressure building up in Jameis. The moment when it became too much for him to contain was as apparent to her as it was to Jameis or to Paul. Jameis leaped high, fainting and striking down with his right hand, but the hand was empty. The Chris knife had been shifted to his left hand. Jessica gasped, but Paul had been warned by Cheney. Jameis fights with either hand, and the depth of his training had taken in that trick en passant. Keep the mind on the knife and not on the hand that holds it, Gurney Halleck had told him time and again. The knife is more dangerous than the hand, and the knife can be in either hand. And Paul had seen Jameis's mistake, bad footwork, so that it took the man a heartbeat longer to recover from his leap, which had been intended to confuse Paul and hide the knife shift. Except for the low yellow light of the glow globes and the inky eyes of the staring troop, it was similar to a session on the practice floor. Shields didn't count where the body's own movement could be used against it. Paul shifted his own knife in a blurred motion, slipped sideways and thrust upward where Jameis's chest was descending, then away to watch the man crumble. Jameis fell like a limp rag, face down, gasped once, and turned his face toward Paul, then lay still on the rock floor. His dead eyes stared out like beads of dark glass. Killing with the point lacks artistry, Idaho had once told Paul, but don't let that hold your hand when the opening presents itself. The troop rushed forward, filling the ring, pushing Paul aside. They hid Jameis in a frenzy of huddling activity. Presently, a group of them hurried back into the depths of the cavern, carrying a burden wrapped in a robe, and there was no body on the rock floor. From this incident, Paul gains a Fremen name, Muad'Dib. Paul Muad'Dib and his Fremen overcome the Emperor's Sardaukar forces and the Harkonnens. Now is the showdown with the Emperor, whose entourage includes Rautha Harkonnen, the man who was groomed to take the place of the old Baron, the family's traditional enemy. Fade Rautha has demanded the right of combat with Paul. Is the Atreides ready? Fade Rautha called using the words of the ancient Connolly ritual. Paul chose to answer him in the Fremen way. May thy knife chip and shatter. He pointed to the emperor's blade on the floor, indicating that Fade Rautha should advance and take it. Keeping his attention on Paul, Fade Rautha picked up the knife balancing it a moment in his right hand to get the feel of it. Excitement kindled in him. This was a fight he had dreamed about. Man against man, skill against skill, with no shields intervening. He could see a way to power opening before him because the emperor surely would reward whoever killed this troublesome duke. 
The reward might even be that haughty daughter and a share of the throne, and this yokel duke, this backworld adventurer, could not possibly be a match for a Harkonnen trained in every device and every treachery by a thousand arena combats. And the yokel had no way of knowing he faced more weapons than a knife here. Let us see if you're proof against poison, Fade Rautha thought. He saluted Paul with the Emperor's blade, said, Meet your death, fool. Shall we fight, cousin? Paul asked. And he cat-footed forward, eyes on the waiting blade, his body crouched low, with his own milk-white Chris knife pointing out as though an extension of his arm. They circled each other, bare feet grating on the floor, watching with eyes intent for the slightest opening. How beautifully you dance, Fade Rotha said. He's a talker, Paul thought. There's another weakness. He grows uneasy in the face of silence. Have you been shriven? Fade Rotha asked. Still, Paul circled in silence. And the old reverend mother, watching the fight from the press of the emperor's suite, felt herself trembling. The Atreides youth had called the Harkonnen cousin. It could only mean he knew the ancestry they shared, easy to understand because he was the Kvisat's Haderach. But the words forced her to focus on the only thing that mattered to her here. This could be a major catastrophe for the Bene Gesserit breeding scheme. She had seen something of what Paul had seen here, that Fade Rautha might kill but not be victorious. Another thought, though, almost overwhelmed her. Two end products of this long and costly program faced each other in a fight to the death that might easily claim both of them. If both died here, that would leave only Fade Routha's bastard daughter, still a baby, an unknown, an unmeasured factor, and Aaliyah, Paul's sister, the abomination. Perhaps you have only pagan rites here, Fade Routha said. Would you like the Emperor's truth-sayer to prepare your spirit for its journey? Paul smiled, circling to the right, alert, his black thoughts suppressed by the needs of the moment. Fade Routha leaped, fainting with his right hand, but with the knife shifted in a blur to his left hand. Paul dodged easily, noting the shield-conditioned hesitation in Fade Routha's thrust. Still, it was not as great a shield-conditioning as some Paul had seen, and he sensed that Fade Routha had fought before against unshielded foes. "'Does an Atreides run or stand and fight?' Fade Routha asked. Paul resumed his silent circling. Idaho's words came back to him, the words of training from the long-ago practice floor on Caladan. Use the first moments in study. You may miss many an opportunity for quick victory this way, but the moments of study are insurance of success. Take your time and be sure. Perhaps you think this dance prolongs your life a few moments, Fade Rotha said. Well and good. He stopped the circling, straightened. Paul had seen enough for a first approximation. Fade Rautha led to the left side, presenting the right hip as though the mailed fighting girdle could protect his entire side. It was the action of a man trained to the shield and with a knife in both hands. Or, and Paul hesitated, the girdle was more than it seemed. The Harkonnen appeared too confident against a man who this day led the forces of victory against Sardaukar legions. Fade Rautha noted the hesitation said, why prolong the inevitable? You but keep me from exercising my rights over this ball of dirt. 
If it's a flip dart, Paul thought, it's a cunning one. The girdle shows no sign of tampering. Why don't you speak? Thadrautha demanded. Paul resumed his probing circle, allowing himself a cold smile at the tone of unease in Thadrautha's voice, evidence that the pressure of silence was building. You smile, eh? Thadrautha asked, and he leaped in mid-sentence. Expecting the slight hesitation, Paul almost failed to evade the downflash of blade, felt its tip scratch his left arm. He silenced the sudden pain there, his mind flooded with realization that the earlier hesitation had been a trick, an overfaint. Here was more of an opponent than he had expected. There would be tricks within tricks within tricks. Your own Thufir Hawit taught me some of my skills, Fadrautha said. He gave me first blood. Too bad the old fool didn't live to see it. And Paul recalled that Idaho had once said, Expect only what happens in the fight. That way you'll never be surprised. Again the two circled each other, crouched, cautious. Paul saw the return of elation to his opponent, wondered at it. Did a scratch signify that much to the man? Unless there were poison on the blade. But how could there be? His own men had handled the weapon, snooped it before passing it. They were too well trained to miss an obvious thing like that. That woman you were talking to over there, Fadrotha said, the little one, is she something special to you? A pet, perhaps? Will she deserve my special attentions? Paul remained silent, probing with his inner senses, examining the blood from the wound, finding a trace of soporific from the emperor's blade. He realigned his own metabolism to match this threat and changed the molecules of the soporific, but he felt a thrill of doubt. They'd been prepared with a soporific on a blade, a soporific, nothing to alert a poison snooper, but strong enough to slow the muscles it touched. His enemies had their own plans within plans, their own stacked treacheries. Again, Fade Rautha leaped, stabbing. Paul, the smile frozen on his face, fainted with slowness as though inhibited by the drug, and at the last instant dodged to meet the downflashing arm on the crisp knife's point. Fade Rautha ducked sideways and was out and away, his blade shifted to his left hand, and the measure of him that only a slight paleness of jaw betrayed the acid pain where Paul had cut him. Let him know his own moment of doubt, Paul thought. Let him suspect poison. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and & Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanet. This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents Stories from the Desert Planet of Dune, read by the Dune Trilogy's author, Frank Herbert.
Treachery, Fade Routha shouted. He's poisoned me. I do feel poison in my arm. Paul dropped his cloak of silence, said, Only a little acid to counter the sulfurific on the emperor's blade. Fade Routha matched Paul's cold smile, lifted blade in left hand for a mock salute. His eyes glared rage behind the knife. Paul shifted his crisp knife to his left hand, matching his opponent. Again they circled, probing. Fade Routha began closing the space between them, edging in, knife held high, anger showing itself in a squint of eye, set of jaw. He fainted right and under, and they were pressed against each other, knife hands gripped, straining. Paul, cautious of Fade Routha's right hip where he suspected a poison flip dart, forced the turn to the right. He almost failed to see the needle point flick out beneath the belt line. A shift and a giving in Fade Routha's motion warned him. The tiny point missed Paul's flesh by the barest fraction. On the left hip. Treachery, within treachery, within treachery, Paul reminded himself. Using Benny Jesserit trained muscles, he sagged to catch a reflex in Fade Routha. But the necessity of avoiding the tiny point jutting from his opponent's hip threw Paul off just enough that he missed his footing and found himself thrown hard to the floor, Fade Routha on top. You see it there on my hip, Fade Routha whispered. You're death, fool. And he began twisting himself around, forcing the poisoned needle closer and closer. It'll stop your muscles, and my knife will finish you. There'll be never a trace left to detect. Paul strained, hearing the silent screams in his mind, his cell-stamped ancestors demanding that he use the secret word to slow Fade Routha to save himself. I will not say it, Paul gasped. Fade Routha gaped at him, caught in the merest fraction of hesitation. It was enough for Paul to find the weakness of balance in one of his opponent's leg muscles, and their positions were reversed. Fade Routha lay partly underneath with right hip high, unable to turn because of the tiny needle point caught against the floor beneath him. Paul twisted his left hand free, aided by the lubrication of blood from his arm, thrust once hard up underneath Fade Routha's jaw. The point slid home into the brain. Fade Routha jerked and sagged back, still held partly on his side by the needle embedded in the floor. Breathing deeply to restore his calm, Paul pushed himself away and got to his feet. He stood over the body, knife in hand, raised his eyes with deliberate slowness to look across the room at the emperor. Majesty, Paul said, your force is reduced by one more. Shall we now shed sham and pretense? Shall we now discuss what must be? Your daughter wed to me, and the way opened for an Atreides to sit on the throne. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of Harper Collins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org.
This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by Harper Collins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanet.